says here, Isaiah 6, 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you cause your word to move from our ears into our hearts and then out into our lips and our conversation? That just like the waters shower the earth and do not return void that so your word would bear fruit in our lives in our conversation in our workplaces that it would accomplish all that you intend we ask that in jesus name amen so the topic i want to focus on from this passage is the concept of forgiveness we, we talked about the forgiveness of sins when, when we did the Apostles' Creed. And Martin Luther has this incredible quote about that line in the Apostles' Creed. And this is what he says. He said, that statement, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, is the single most important statement in the entire creed. He says this, if forgiveness of sins is not true, what does it matter whether God is almighty? Or that Jesus Christ was born and died and rose again. It's because these things have a bearing upon my forgiveness that they are important to me. Friends, when we declare that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're saying that, that we think those three words might actually communicate something real. Concrete. Something lasting. Not just a feeling or a mood of being unburdened, but something cosmic and objective. When we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we're making a revolutionary statement. We're making a radically hopeful statement about the impermanence of evil and the superpermanence of redemptive love and goodness. Now, we learn from Jesus when he teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer in Matthew that there's a connection between our forgiveness of sins and our knowledge of our own forgiveness of sins and our ability to forgive others. 
And if forgiveness of other people, if, if, if walking in that kind of gracious love that mirrors the love of God is something that we're called to do as part of our love of neighbor, how much more important that we understand the source and the power and the foundation of God's forgiveness of us. One person defined forgiveness as maintaining relationship in the face of wrongdoing. Before thinking about how to extend forgiveness to other people, how to maintain relationship in the face of other people's wrongdoing, we need to focus on our own experience of forgiveness. So first, I'd like us to look at in this passage the need for forgiveness, and then we'll look at the source of forgiveness. So if you're taking notes, there's going to be kind of two headings. And maybe I'll throw in a third for good measure if, you, if we have time. So I want you to focus first on, on our need for forgiveness. What we see here in the first part of Isaiah is that there is a real problem with Isaiah and with the people of God. You see, the scene opens up almost immediately in the throne room of God. Scripture talks about the throne room of God as, is um, just the, the heavenly divine council. So it's the place where God sits upon his throne. Various, various prophets have seen visions of this. The, the earthly temple in the Old Testament is kind of modeled after this pattern of God's heavenly throne room. It's a real place. And the interesting thing about, you know, the way the scriptures de de define the, and describe the heavenly realm, you know, is it's less like another planet way off there in the sky than it is like in that show Stranger Things. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this. It's, I mean, I don't recommend all of it, but one of the, the, the conceits of the show is that there is this other realm kind of right next to our realm. It's called the upside down in the show. But in Scripture, the heavenly realm is just like right alongside and on top of this physical created world. Such that sometimes when people have eyes to see, they can see the invisible spiritual reality that's upholding and surrounding and kind of permeating everything. Friends, we live in an enchanted world. And Isaiah gets a glimpse of that. He goes to church and he sees the last thing that he is kind of expecting to see, which is God himself. And all of a sudden, the, the vision that he sees you know, overlapped on top of the earthly um, temple is God's throne sitting right on top of the temple and God's glory and God's robe and God's voice and God's heavenly attendance, you know, filling all of his senses. So what prompts Isaiah to, to, to kind of be aware of his need for forgiveness is, is this overwhelming vision that he sees. And the overwhelming vision is one of God's holiness. You hear the, the angelic attendants, uh, the seraphim, which just means you know, burning ones, shining ones, <laughs> crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the God of hosts, meaning the God who commands all the angelic armies. 
It's a vision of power, a vision of majesty, and a vision of, of holiness. You know, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, some of you probably know this because you're smart people, but um, in, the, in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you don't just say like very or extra. You know, if I want to say you're, you're a very nice person in Hebrew or you're a very nice congregation, I wouldn't say you're very nice. I would say you're nice, nice. You know, in the Garden of Eden, when God warns Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they will die, he, he doesn't just say that they will surely die. In Hebrew, he actually says they will die, die. Here in Isaiah is the only place that equality is tripled or trebled. So God is said to be not just holy, not just holy, holy, but holy, 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 like holy to a superlative degree that we cannot fathom, holier than anything. Now, what, is, what does scripture mean when it talks about holiness? We, we can have this conception, certainly I think a lot of my students have this conception of holiness as primarily a negative quality, as like this antiseptic quality, um, mostly related to, to ethics, you know, so holiness is kind of like ethical separation from sin. So it's a negative quality. It's like free of stain from sin. Certainly that's an aspect of what it means that God is holy. He does not sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin, right? But just reason with me for a second. I, there was this incredible book by um, a Scottish preacher named Sinclair Ferguson, called Devoted to God. And one of the things he says in this book is that if God is holy before the foundations of the world, before anything was created that was created, and also before the fall, like before sin entered the world, how could he be holy? If holy is a separation from that which is sinful, and there was nothing to be separated from. There was only God. It must mean that holy has, holiness has something to do with God's character. It has something to do with the, the person of God himself, the being of God himself. And so what Ferguson says is that you can actually define holiness as in a relational way. To say that holiness is about belonging to God about being utterly consumed by God, about being utterly preoccupied and given over to God. And so what the angels are saying, in, in their own way, they're being holy because they're being utterly captivated, utterly given over to this God whose beauty and glory radiates out. They cannot take their eyes off of him and neither can Isaiah. Um, recently, I was, I was able to do a wedding uh, for some, some students of mine. And I, I love doing weddings for, for this reason. You know, I'm standing up on the stage and the bride walks out. And in that moment, I'm standing right next to the groom, this young guy who's about to be a senior at UNCW. They've been in my group. They've been Bible study leaders. And so he looks out and he is so utterly captivated by what he sees walking down the aisle. And under his breath, I asked him about this later, he doesn't even remember saying it, he said, that's my wife. Friends, that is what the angels are doing in God's heavenly throne room. They're going, that's my God. I am so captivated by his beauty. 
I am so caught up by the magnetic power of his holiness. And so Isaiah is seeing this, this song of admiration to God, and he realizes, he said, the angels say, you know, the whole earth is filled with his glory. There's no place to hide. The entire time, I mean, the exits are blocked in the temple by his, by his robe, right? So you can't go anywhere. And so he is confronted with this shining kind of nuclear vision of God's glory. And he says, oh, no. In the same way that I felt a little bit awkward, you know, standing next to this college student admiring his bride, Isaiah thinks, this is awkward. I should not be here. <laughs> Have you ever walked in, you know, on like an intimate conversation between two people or an argument between two people, and you kind of walk in the room and think, I'm just going to leave because I do not want to be a part of this. This is, I've walked into something that I shouldn't see. Isaiah realizes that, that he, that something here does not belong. One of these things is not like the other. The angels are incredibly devoted to God, focused on praising him. God, incredibly devoted to himself, holy, you know, beyond all measure. And Isaiah says, I am not. So Isaiah sees this vision and then he makes this confession. And what is Isaiah's confession? It has two parts. First, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Why do you think Isaiah focuses on himself first? I think it's incredibly instructive for us. Friends, did you know you're the most sinful person you know? Like seriously. I am the most sinful person I know. Now the problem is, it is so easy for me to get caught up and preoccupied with the sins of other people, especially people that I think of as other than me, whether politically other, religiously other, or just people that annoy me. Um, I can get so hung up and so anxious and I usually get mad, I don't get grieved. I should get grieved, I should weep, but instead I just get snarky. I get so hung up about the sin out here when what scripture calls us to do over and over again is first to look at the sin in here. Um, there's this story about the, um, the Times of London in the 1900s posing this question to a bunch of preeminent thinkers and scholars in um, England, and basically they were asked the question, what's wrong with the world today? And you can imagine, if, I mean, if someone did that now, someone threw that question out on Twitter, you know, people would just line up like, I'll tell you exactly what's wrong is those people over there, you know, the kind of, you know, the red people would say it's the blue people and the blue people would say it's the red people and everyone would just kind of line up, you know, with what their, you know, their, their preconceived notions of what's wrong. The author G.K. Chesterton, who was um, started as an atheist and was converted as a Catholic later in life, is a profound thinker, he, he writes in, in answer to this question, what's really wrong with the world? What's wrong with society? Whose fault is it? And he says, dear sir, I am 
sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) What was he getting at? He knew that each of us makes the world a more broken place every single day. The world is a more sinful place because I woke up and I'm still breathing this morning. And it's one of the enemy's tricks to convince you that the sins of your neighbor are more worthy of your attention than the sins inside your own heart. And so what Isaiah does is is he very instructively, very wisely focuses on his own sin first. But he confesses about his lips, which I think is kind of an interesting thing. You know, what was it exactly that was wrong with Isaiah's lips? It doesn't say. But you all know that there is a connection between the heart and the mouth. That what we think in our heart, what we value, naturally overflows into how we speak. The things you love, the things you fear. And I don't know, I, I, I just wonder if at this politically kind of uh, turbulent time, at a place where there's n- like no confidence whatsoever in the leadership of his nation, that he started speaking in an unbelieving way that he would speak and maybe talk to his friends in such a way that acted like he didn't believe that there was a God who was sovereignly in charge of the entire universe and is ordering everything for his glory and his people's good. I wonder if, if, if Isaiah thought, if Isaiah was speaking sometimes like people that don't know God, like he was getting his talking points from unbelievers, And then he focuses on on the speech, the lips of his community. Remember, not unbelievers, not the pagan nations, but his own people. He moves out from himself to his kind of circle of influence and responsibility, God's covenant people. And he says, the covenant people have unclean lips too. All of us have been speaking and thinking and acting as if there is no God. We have spoken things that are not true because we believe things that are not true in our hearts. And he says, woe is me. Basically pronouncing a curse upon himself. That's curse language when someone says, woe is me. When Jesus in Matthew 23, you know, says, woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. He's saying, you are bringing a curse upon yourself because of your hypocrisy. So he says, woe is me. Basically, I deserve to be cursed. I deserve to be judged. Because I have not loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I have not loved my neighbor as ourselves. And so he says, you know, I am unclean. I need to be cleansed. And that cleansing is what the Bible describes. It's one of the images that the Bible uses to describe forgiveness. So we see that Isaiah and us, if you're at all prone like Isaiah to speak or to feel or to fear things in unbelief, we need forgiveness. And where does forgiveness come from? Well, this is, let's look at the source of forgiveness. First, forgiveness comes from outside of ourselves. Um, We tend to think sometimes about guilt as merely a psychological problem. Now, maybe we don't struggle with that because you all are Bible-reading people, I hope. But certainly people outside in the world, my students, tend to think of guilt and shame as primarily kind of an internal psychological issue 
that they just need to kind of pull up, you know, pull themselves up by their mental bootstraps and get over. Like they'll say things to each other like, well, the reason you don't feel forgiven is you just haven't forgiven yourself. And here's the problem is um, I'm so unreliable, I'm so fickle. And so if it is up to me to kind of feel my way into forgiveness or to kind of gin up a sense of forgiveness and confidence inside of myself, I mean, y'all, I'm toast. And so we need a source of forgiveness that is objective and real and outside of ourselves. And that's exactly what, I, what Isaiah gets. Forgiveness isn't something that just proceeds from inside the depths of his own, you know, forgiving heart. It comes from the throne of God. So the source of real gospel forgiveness we see is God. But what is it about God? We would probably say, well, it's God's grace. Uh, It's God's love. It's God's mercy. It's God's kindness. All true. But what do we see here? What do we see kind of um, symbolized and pictured for us to drive home the reality of Isaiah's and our forgiveness? I would say that what we see here is a reminder that true, lasting, objective forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that you and I and your neighbors need, actually flows out of God's justice. Let me explain. Okay, look at verses six and seven. Look at what the angel does. And I I just think this, this is incredible. Atonement, you know, realignment with God, where does it come from? It comes from this coal that the angel brings. And where does the coal come from? It comes from the altar. Friends, what gets burned up on the altar? The sacrifice. I remember sitting in a Bible study with a student. We're at his house. We're sitting in these lawn chairs outside um, on Wrightsville Avenue in Wilmington. We're reading this with his roommate. This kid struggles, struggles to feel forgiven about the stuff that he's been into, the stuff that he's done, the stuff that he's said, the stuff that he's seen. And we look at this passage, and I asked that question. I said, you know, what gets burned up on the altar? What do you think those coals are pieces of? And he said, the sacrifice. And immediately he makes this connection. The lamb, the burnt offering. What does John the Baptist say the first time he's walking with his disciples and he sees Jesus, you know, across the street? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, objective, real sacrifice comes from justice because it comes not by God just simply putting away judgment for our sins, but by judging a substitute in our place. 
the judged substitute gets burnt up, gets consumed so that you and I are not burnt up and consumed. And so Isaiah gets the atoning life of the sacrifice applied to the very specific place that he most acutely feels his sin. This is why our confession says that it's important for us to uh, confess particular sins particularly so that we're not just satisfied with a general repentance because you need a particular redemption. You need a particular forgiveness. You need the redeeming blood of Jesus applied to the place where you feel your sin most acutely where you feel most guilty, where you feel most ashamed, whatever that dark place is, God is saying, Jesus is crucified for you there. Now, think about this. In our, in our um, house, we have this saying that we stole from Brene Brown, which is, you're not allowed to say a kind thing with a mean face. You know, because communication is more than just verbal. You know, it's, there's all this nonverbal stuff that happens too. So if I say, I love you, but I'm like really angry, it's not, doesn't sound loving. I wonder how, uh, if you're like me at all, and for a long time you heard things like this about the sacrificial love of God, and you thought, yeah, God loves me, but he doesn't like me. I, I need you to know this. The angels are like (laughs) chomping at the bit to rush to the altar to forgive, to apply forgiveness to Isaiah's sin. Why? Because they know that God invited Isaiah in there not to scold him, not to shame him, but to forgive him, to cleanse him. Why? Because God is compassionate and grateful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he, he desires that none should perish. But he's a God who loves to forgive. He's a God who is more ready to forgive you than you are to ask for forgiveness. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? So I have to think that immediately Isaiah did not just feel, you know, awkward for walking in on this worship service, but felt welcomed, felt delighted in, felt loved, felt embraced. Which is why immediately when God says, who shall we send? Who will go be a vessel of mercy and and proclaim repentance to an unrepentant people? Isaiah says, well, I'll, I'll go. Because he has been so transformed by the objective reality of God's forgiving love that he can't help but proclaim that message to others. That he's given this message of reconciliation, saying, you know, God's not holding your sins against us, as the New Testament says. Now, why is it important that we have an objective source for forgiveness? That we just say, you know, this is based in God's justice and not simply in God's grace or something. Because God's grace is wonderful. I love God's grace. But God's grace is not an unjust grace. 
It is not just as simple um, like this, you know, benevolent grandfather, this indulgent kind of God up in the sky just going, oh yeah, sure, sin a little more, I'll forgive you. When we sin, we are, <laughs> we are crucifying Christ again. Like we're adding more totals to our debt. And so the, the Bible says, you know, sin is a serious, serious thing. But here's the thing that I think is really, really important. It, it doesn't just keep us from kind of a cheap view of grace. It also actually enables us to really forgive our neighbors, even the ones we don't want to forgive. Because we actually believe that God is not just overlooking sin. That we believe that every sin, past, present, and future, is going to be paid for. Either by the God-man, Jesus Christ, or by the person who committed it. And when I imagine God's justice falling on my neighbor, then I weep. Then I cry out, and then I say, God, would you forgive them, please, so that they do not have to suffer eternal punishment for what they have done to me and what they've done against you. Uh, there's a woman named Rachel Den Hollander, who's a part of a, a panel that our denomination, the PCA, uh, did to, to um, study and advise the church on how to deal with abuse. The whole like study that they did is remarkable, and you, I dare you to read it without weeping. I'm just so proud of our church, of the national church, the PCA, for doing this study. Um, Rachel Denhollander, if you don't know anything about her, I, I admire her so much. Um, and I, I, you know, I saw her at General Assembly and I walked by and I was like, thank you so much. You know, I, and I, I started crying because if you don't know her story, um, she was a part of the group and really kind of the first to come out in the scandal against the, the USA Gymnastics coach, Larry Nasser. Um, who was convicted for some pretty awful uh, things involving um, the young gymnast in his care. And one of the things that happened at the, at the hearings, uh, as she gave a deposition about what had happened, um, she actually spoke about God's forgiveness. And she spoke about God's justice. And I'll just read a little bit of, of what she said here. She, she's speaking to... to um, Larry Nasser, this man who at the very beginning of the hearings brought a Bible in uh, to the hearings, and she said this, in our early hearings, Larry, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you've spoken of praying for forgiveness, and so it is on that basis that I'm appealing to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he didn't commit. By his grace, I too choose to live this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness doesn't come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. In the Bible, uh, the Bible you speak of 
carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray that you would experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, even though I extend that to you as well. Whoa. It's on CNN if you want to watch it. She's saying there is a judge who judges righteously and justly. You need forgiveness from him way more than you need forgiveness from me. And knowing that every sin will be paid for and that justice will win out, I can extend to forgiveness to you as well. Y'all, we need that kind of forgiveness. We need that kind of confidence in the just grace of God if we are going to interact with people who are harming us, who are hurting us, who are threatening those we love. And the Bible has said that we have have to forgive our enemies. We have to love our enemies. This is how we do it. I pray that you and I would be so familiar with our own sin and so captivated by God's holiness and mercy that we would be able to live lives of forgiveness and grace toward our neighbors, especially the ones that we know we're supposed to love but we don't really like. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are crying out, who will go? Who will go to that neighbor? Who will go to that coworker? Who will I send? Who will tell them of the redeeming love of a God who is not holding their sin against them, who delights in showing steadfast love and mercy, who desires to be reconciled to them? Who will give them this message of grace? Lord, would you send us?